Hello, my name is Father Gregory Pine, and I'm a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph, and I'm delighted to be joining you again for the next installment, or the most recent installment, of Off-Campus Conversations here on the Thomistic Institute podcast. So each, well, not each, but every two weeks, we follow up with the Thomistic Institute speaker, uh, whether a lecture or a contribution to a conference or to an intellectual retreat, so that way we can deepen some of the insights uh, that may have been presented in that setting and just afford us the opportunity to get to know some of these speakers better as the network of folks in association with continues to grow and those relationships continue to be of service for yeah, reinvigorating the Catholic intellectual tradition on campus and beyond. So in this episode, I'm very delighted to be joined by Mary Eberstadt. Thanks so much for joining the Thomistic Institute podcast. Thanks for having me, Father Gregory. My joy. Um, so many of our listeners will know you. Um, the book that I read um, maybe 10 years ago was Adam and Eve After the Pill. We'll know you from that or from contributions that you've made to Thomistic Institute events in the past. And I know I was present for one. It was the first conference uh, for which I was present when I worked for the Thomistic Institute in Washington, D.C., um, the one that was in the wake of the Theodore McCarrick scandal. So a sober event, but some excellent contributions there, among which yours was very good. I remember it involving what, like the elephant in the, well, you'll, you'll enlighten me. Um, <laughs> um, but, but for those who don't know you, um, would you just say a word about who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Yes, thank you. Well, institutionally, I have two affiliations. I'm with the Catholic Information Center in downtown Washington, D.C., and I'm also a senior research fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute. I'm the author of several books, several works of nonfiction, one work of fiction, which was actually produced as a stage play at Catholic University in 2017 called The Loser Letters. I'm also a um, wife and mother of four, I'm happy to say. And um, although I work in various genres, the book that we're talking about today, I see as the capstone to uh, work that I've been doing on the sexual revolution and its fallout for the last 10 plus years. Okay. Um, well, then let's just get right into the book. Um, so would you just give us a, a quick thumbnail sketch of the book itself, its title, its scope, and maybe the, the general shape of the argument? Yes. So about a decade ago, I have to first talk about the first installment, which was called Adam and Eve After the Pill. That book came out of my continuing feeling that the truth about the sexual revolution was being suppressed in a society dominated by secularism. And by suppressed, I don't mean anything nefarious like a conspiracy, but I mean that I faced what I thought was a paradox, which was that the empirical evidence all around us from psychology, sociology, popular culture, indicated that the sexual revolution was exacting great damage. And so in the first book, I assembled some of that evidence, uh, which to repeat is not theological evidence. This is all evidence taken straight from the social scientists. Um, and I argued that contrary to the dominant narrative, the sexual revolution has done a lot of damage to men, to women, to children, to relationships. And so that book concerned what I think of as the microcosmic impact of the sexual revolution, its effects on individuals. The second book, the new one, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited, is 
a look at the macro picture. What has the revolution done to society, politics, and the church? And not only in the United States, but really across the Western world. And the argument of this new book is that some of the signature features of our time, uh, such as increasingly divisive politics and more violence in the streets and diminishing life expectancy, drug addiction, etc., that these things themselves are also tied to the same revolution because of its effects on families, because of the way it fractured the nuclear family, the extended family in many cases, because of the way in which it reduced the number of people in other people's lives. And we can talk more about that, that kind of arithmetic factor of the sexual revolution, because I don't think it's well understood. But in this new book, I'm trying to take what I learned from the first and carry it onto uh, an even bigger stage uh, to test the hypothesis again. And I test it throughout the book and find that it was correct to argue the first time around that this thing that has been hailed as a liberation has actually had some very negative consequences for our, our country uh, and our world. Okay, so maybe when thinking about the sexual revolution, um, you know, some people construe it as a as a win-win. Other people construe it as like a zero-sum game. Other people would construe it as a complete apocalyptic nightmare. Uh, so maybe as a way to focus the conversation at the outset, we can ask, you know, who wins and who loses. So based on your findings in this new book, do you see any clear winners? It sounds like you see a lot of clear losers, but if you could summarize under those two categories, are there are there yieldings of that inquiry which are fruitful? Well, the biggest winners, of course, uh, are the minority of men who are predatory men. They have been the victors in the sexual revolution because, as argued throughout these books, its main effect has been to further weaken the weak and to empower the already strongest in society. So that's one way of answering the question. Now, of course, as a matter of social science, again, it is true that the adoption of contraception by most people in the United States and elsewhere after the invention of the pill has made it possible for women to be in the paid marketplace uh, without having their careers interrupted uh, in the same way that they were before, etc. That's all true. More money to women. My point is to say that here as elsewhere, money isn't always everything, and the financial benefits of the, the smaller family, the non-family, the financial benefits of the increased autonomy that we see have to be weighed against the deficits that the revolution has incurred as well. Okay, um, so maybe then you, you mentioned society, politics, and then the church. Maybe we just kind of take each in turn. Um, I think part of the reason why people are so overwhelmed by this question or maybe despair of resolving this question in any satisfactory way is because the macrocosm seems entirely beyond their ken to synthesize. I think a lot of people just kind of feel sad and angry, bewildered, bemused, and then don't know how to draw conclusions. What are some kind of broad ranging conclusions that we can draw on a societal level as we try to synthesize what it is that it's brought about or the havoc that it's wreaked? Sure. Well, so to talk about society for a minute, 
it's been observed throughout recorded history that societies are as strong as the families on which they rest. And by that measure, our society is in pretty precarious shape. Now, to say that is not to point a finger at anybody for falling short of some ideal. It's just to observe that collectively, since the embrace of the sexual revolution, several things have happened. And not all of these things were predicted uh, in the 1960s. The skyrocketing of divorce, of cohabitation, of fatherless homes, and of abortion. All of these things increased after the 1960s. In fact, some people present at the creation thought that the opposite would happen. They thought that contraception would be great for marriage, for example, because it would give couples more freedom over their fertility. Um, and similarly, it was thought that contraception, once massively adopted, would reduce abortion. This was Margaret Sanger's argument, actually. Contraception reduces abortion. And we hear this constantly. But as I point out in the book, the, the facts do not support this. The facts actually lie on the opposite side of this argument. So what does it mean that we have families that are smaller, families that are weaker, more kids growing up without siblings, without cousins, without aunts, uncles, etc. I think one thing it means is something else that is well documented, and that is the psychological fragility of many young people. Just the other day, the CDC released a new study suggesting that something like three out of five teenage girls have suffered depression and anxiety three out of five of those that they surveyed. And this is something, Father Gregory, that I've been trying to bring out in my work, uh, not only in these books, but elsewhere, because this psychological crisis among the young has been compounding over the years. My argument is that it is directly connected to the disappearance from many young people's lives of a number of loving, supportive figures. To say this is not to romanticize the 1950s when families were bigger, and it's not to romanticize the Middle Ages when families were also bigger and lifespan was 30 years. It is just to observe that we are only beginning to understand what mankind inflicted on itself with this experiment. Because one of the things that the revolution did was subtract human beings out of the lives of other human beings, especially, again, young people. So I argue that there are connections between the loneliness we see today and the decisions that were taken 50 years ago by the people who are now the grandparents and parents of the youngsters who are suffering these ill effects. It is not the fault of the young. It's not the fault of any single person. But we do need to understand that something that was willingly chosen, which was participation in interfering with creation, if you want to put it that way, uh, is something that has had negative consequences. Um, in the book, it's interesting. So you stress human connectivity uh, in a kind of traditional sense or thick sense. Uh, we also have a lot of conversations, you know, in the last 10, 15, 20 years about human connectivity in a more thin sense or artificial sense. Uh, are, are there ways in which to isolate for like real connectivity, you know, thick connectivity? Because whilst many, you know, many families are smaller and people have less of a support structure and 
like fewer of the ordinary means for kind of typical social resiliency, yet they have many more contacts, you know, thrown to the four winds by, by virtue of social media or by virtue of other technological means. Do you have ways of isolating for that or identifying the difference pursuant to each? Well, first, let me stress before getting to the question that it's important to know this is not a monocausal argument. I am not laying all of society's problems at the, at the foot of the birth control pill, nothing like that. There are lots of things going on that result in this sometimes bleak situation that we see. My point instead is that this is the cause that is the least acknowledged. This is the cause that is the least attended by secular society. This is the thing that outside traditional factions within churches, this is the thing that people don't want to admit. And so that is why I have dissected it so, uh, I, I hope, thoroughly. Um, as to the connectivity question, so for example, there are two other phenomena that uh, the young are grappling with. One is, of course, the cell phone and all that it entails. Uh, and the other is the rise in drug use. The United States is in the midst of the worst drug epidemic in its history because the opioid epidemic has been followed by the heroin epidemic and now by the synthetic methamphetamine and heroin epidemic. So here we see these things connect, I think, why do so many, especially young people, feel as if their real life is in their phone? What is the font of the loneliness that drives that? What makes these technologies not only inherently addictive, but also extra addictive to certain people? Again, I think the loneliness and lack of connection is behind that, as it is behind the drug epidemic. Uh, these drugs are the most powerful addictive substances known to man. Absolutely. That said, many people manage not to get addicted to them. So what does it tell us that in record numbers we have Americans grappling with this and suffering? What, what is the hole that they're trying to fill there? I think the answer is twofold. One, we've already talked about, which is family collapse, the way in which so many people have been sent into orbit without any gravitational center. And the other, of course, is that so many people are not participating in organized religion. They're not attending church in many cases. Um, this is not to say that church is the solution for everything, but organized religion obviously hands people exactly the things that so many people are missing today. It hands them fellowship. Um, in the case of Christianity, it teaches us that we are brothers and sisters in Christ that is, it supplies us with immediate familial relationships uh, of a, a supernatural kind. These are exactly the kinds of things that, that go missing, especially among the young. And so it's frustrating because so many messages are, uh, are being given to today's adolescents and 20-somethings that I think are really inimical to their well-being. And I'd, I'd like to specify for those adolescents and 20-somethings who may be listening, because the culture tells them that they should get their education finished, however long it takes, and that they should get their financial life in perfect order before they even think about getting married. 
the culture also tells them that children are expensive and a burden. Uh, and sometimes the culture tells them that for ecological reasons, they shouldn't even think of having them. So we're talking about a group of people, many of whom already suffer from loneliness, and what they are being told will only increase the fundamental problem they face. There, as elsewhere, I think the messages that emanate from the secularist world, and I don't mean this in a political sense, this is beyond politics, secularism's message about how to be happy, about the rightfulness of pursuing short-term pleasure at the expense of long-term fulfillment is really bad for people. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to get across in this book without using theology or philosophy, as wonderful as those things are, you don't need philosophy or theology to understand that something has gone off the rails here and that the wider secular culture that celebrates the way we live now is missing a lot of suffering out there. And what I'm trying to do is honor that suffering and bring it to light. Yeah, that, that, that's a fascinating approach. Um, I was once in a pastoral ministry class and we were having a, uh, a conference on same-sex attraction. And the presenter was speaking about like ministry to persons who suffer with same-sex attraction. And he was talking about how there's a certain temptation to water down the church's teaching because you fear that it might deal kind of wounds to those who feel they have no place within its bounds. But he said, think about it first as a kind of act or jest of, nope, 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 that's another language, an act of fidelity um, towards those who are striving to live the church's teaching and would feel entirely alienated were you to suggest that anything less than the integrity of the faith was a viable option. He's like, no, you're responsible as to like safeguard the truth because there are people out there, right? who are lost or there are people out there who are imprisoned and the only thing that keeps them going is the promise that there is genuine liberty to be had or genuine truth to be encountered. And I think like, yeah, one, one of the things about this particular conversation is so frustrating is that it often postures as a way of liberation, but it continues to enslave or to, you know, kind of mire those who suffer from it in deeper and deeper servitude, unbeknownst to them as they themselves fly the flag or the banner and sound the clarion call for the very thing which brings about their own undoing. It's just, yeah, it's very tragic. It's very tragic. Ah, okay, well, maybe I'm, that's... I'm sure oh, you ahead. see this all the time, Father Gregory, but I see it sometimes too. Some of the most zealous converts coming into the church today are coming out of this wreckage. They've been looking for a way out of it, and they find that sometimes tough rule book that Christians are told to observe and they have that aha moment, like, oh, that's it. Now I've found it. Now I know what I'm supposed to do for the first time. And that's why it's so frustrating to see these uh, civil wars within the churches now over all of these issues connected to the sexual revolution. You know, 60 years ago when this all got started, there were people who wanted to change the church. They wanted to change church teaching at a time when people took a very rosy view of the sexual revolution, and they thought surely that teaching could be expanded to accommodate this thing in various ways. We hear the same argument today, but we don't have the excuse that those people had because we are surrounded by evidence that this experiment has run amok, 
and caused suffering. So at the very moment when we have all of this before us, all of this proof that there was wisdom in church teaching that went missing, that people weren't aware of, that is now being vindicated by the facts, that is another paradox we face, that we're hearing these calls to change the church and make the church accommodate itself to the secular world when the secular world has been wrong about this and the Catholic Church, at least, called it right in Humanae Vitae and elsewhere. Yeah. No, it's it's fascinating, like, when you look back at the, yeah, like you called it, a kind of rosy estimation of the accord or concordat or whatever could be struck between the church and the modern world in the 50s and 60s. Um, I was just reading, I referenced this in another podcast, maybe it was on the Thomistic Institute, but <clears throat> I was just reading with my community a biography of Marie-Dominique Chenu, who was one of these experts present at the Second Vatican Council, who had a lot to do with the drafting of Gaudium et Spes. And he was pushing for a lot of things in a kind of a way that we would characterize now as classically uh, for the 1950s and 60s, progressive liberal. Um, and the last chapter in the book was entitled The Crisis, What Crisis? He was one of the few who, looking around at the subsequent destruction, you know, pursuant to 1968, was 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 willing to take it to his term and say, no, we haven't gone far enough. Uh, and I think it's it's in the face of reactions like that when we think, no, no, like the only way in which to roll this back is to be, you know, courageous, right? It's to be forthright about the truth itself, because it's not like the culture is going to come to its senses and just say, you know, maybe we should maybe we should retreat from some of the things on which we've advanced. Because as we've seen in the last, you know, 10 years, it just picks up speed. (laughs) Well, here we can get to what I think are some grounds for hope. Because 10 plus years ago, when the first Adam and Eve after the pill book came out, it was discussed strictly within religious circles. It did not make a dent on the secular press. Some of my other books have, but that one was verboten. You know, you couldn't go near that subject. We've seen the change uh, in the last couple of years, and I write about this in the introduction because I think readers might really be interested to know that during the last couple of years, suddenly watching these same phenomena, watching like how precarious romance is for many young men and young women, and what kind of issues arise out of pornography use, for example, and all of that trouble. Watching this, some people, including in several different countries, as I mentioned in the book, have come to the conclusion that maybe we should look at this again. Maybe we've gotten something wrong about sexual liberation. Maybe maybe a few rules are not the worst idea. So I'm sensing uh, just the very beginnings, perhaps, but a revisionism underway that I think will only grow stronger commensurate with the evidence that supports it. Once again, at exactly this moment, for some people within the church to raise the white flag and say, we can't do this anymore, is really the worst possible timing. Now is the moment when we should be saying, not in a triumphalist sort of way, I told you so, but we should be saying, look, this body of teachings that has been so reviled, especially since the 1960s, actually has truth in it. 
and truth that is being vindicated in a way we never expected to see, documented by perfectly secular social scientists, some of them anti-Catholic, most of them non-Catholic. It's really an amazing thing to behold, and I hope that the book brings that out because it's a central paradox about the way we live today. But it is, bottom line, good news for traditional teaching. Yeah. No, it's so maybe just to kind of like focus in on the present cultural moment. Um, I was talking to somebody recently about transgenderism. Uh, this was Brandon Vogt was talking about uh, specifically like apologetics in light of the transgender movement. And he's just very, he's very like kind, solicitous for the good of the person with whom he's speaking and just very measured in his approach. So I was very, yeah, I was encouraged by that conversation. Um, but I was thinking about it like, the, the present cultural moment, we're kind of deconstructing deconstructions. We've, we're not clear exactly what we're rebelling against, and it may in fact be rebellions. And, you know, like the transgender sporting question is one where I think we've lost our orientation. And you see this, like how the lesbian movement is divided as to its reception of transgenderism, because on the one hand, it's, it's deeply liberated, or so it would seem. But on the other hand, it's deeply anti-feminist, um, because you see, you know, there's just two kinds of men's sports now. Um, men's sports and then women's men's sports, you know, it's just like, ah. um, so thinking about that, we said we were talking about this in terms of society. We're talking about in terms of politics. We're talking about in terms of the churches as we, as we kind of enter this precarious cultural moment right now, where we seem to be deconstructing deconstructions and you're talking about signs of hope. Might, might we roll this back? Do you, do you find particular avenues in politics or in ecclesial discourse where this rolling back has taken place or might continue to take place or could potentially take place? Well, I think the Dobbs decision was the most significant example of political rollback that we have seen. That was major. And it's major around the world because here you have the United States which took the lead in the West. It wasn't the first country to legalize abortion. It was the first to enshrine it as a right that was untouchable uh, throughout most or all of pregnancy. The United States took the lead there, and many countries followed suit. Many Catholic countries or formerly Catholic countries raced to legalize abortion too. Now the United States has done something of an about face through the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision. And that's an amazing fact, because like a great ship on the ocean that's being followed by a lot of smaller ships, the wake that that decision leaves is going to be massive over time. So that's a very significant example of political rollback. Uh, About other kinds of rollback on these smaller experiments, like transgender experiments, I think we're already seeing that. The most liberal countries in the world that pioneered these supposed treatments for confused kids are now taking back some of their own protocols. And the United States is bound to do the same as the harm from those experiments becomes more visible. Uh, One also expects that the doctors and others who have commercially exploited this phenomenon will someday be held to account and that that will have an effect as well. So I think we are seeing signs of change. You know, it's very easy, especially for people who are tradition-minded, to feel as if the whole world outside very small pockets of the church uh, is a juggernaut, you know, coming to get you and roll you over. 
we need to be very aware of the signs of the times indicating that some of this is changing. Yeah. Um, okay, so maybe maybe then in light of that, I think that the way that people typically see these issues as um, linked together, a lot of people take the narrative back to no-fault divorce at the beginning of the 20th century, and then they'll talk about, you know, uh, contraception, and they'll talk about the sexual revolution, and then with that, they'll talk about subsequent, you know, like kind of heteronormative modes of transgression, and then um, homosexual modes of transgression, and then the transgender movement is kind of like the ripest fruit, as it were, of the sexual revolution. In your book, do you focus on um, like one particular segment, or do you focus on like one particular expression, or are you trying to cover most of these bases in the process? Well, I think at uh, the widest possible angle, there is a chapter in the book that subsumes all of these instantiations under one rubric, and that is. Uh, I I observe in the chapter that Alexander Solzhenitsyn said of the 20th century that it could be summarized in four words, he said. Men have forgotten God. He was talking, of course, about the world wars and the rise of atheism, etc. And I suggest that the 21st can be summarized in six words, which are men are at war with God. Men are at war with God over the question of who owns creation, who gets to direct creation, who decides human life and its comings and goings. Obviously, as the church teaches, contraception is one kind of rebellion against that. Uh, sterilization is one kind of rebellion against that. Euthanasia is one kind of rebellion against that. Uh, purposely sterile sex is another rebellion against that. Notice what all of these do, by the way. They all have the effect of shrinking us, of making us smaller and less connected. So although I'm sure the theologians among us, like you, would know the distinctions between different acts and different kinds of rebellion, in a certain sense, without giving them moral equivalence, I think we can see that they are all springing from this same desire, which is age old, which is the desire to say, uh, I'm God. I don't need another one. I can direct the traffic on my own. And the kind of problems we're seeing around us, like the fact that life expectancy in the United States has declined for the first time in recorded history. That's amazing. Uh, these kind of facts suggest that actually we're not doing such a great job directing things on our own. And again, I have faith that as the evidence continues to be amassed about the cost of the experiments that we're running, people are going to change their minds. They will have second thoughts and revisionism is coming and maybe with it, religious awakening. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, you mentioned revisionism and religious awakening. Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, the American Republic has been doing pretty well in the sense that it's been around for whatever, some 250 years. But I don't know what the typical life cycle of a Western Republic in the modern and contemporary age is. But, you know, some people might call to question whether or not the American Republic has a lot left. Um, so uh, without being too terribly apocalyptic or kind of jumping the shark on the discourse, um, what do you think? 
at the level of like society, politics, and the churches, um, a kind of move in the direction of progress or revision, a religious awakening, what might that look like? Would that even be recognizable to us? Because I think part of the reason for which this trajectory of trans transgression has had so much success is that it's actually convinced us as a people, to speak in global terms, uh, that it's impossible to live otherwise, right? It just doesn't seem like there is an alternative. So, so what would it look like for the American imagination to be open again to the possibility of something more healthy, just to use a very basic terminology, but like holy to use something more exalted? Well, it's very interesting, Father Gregory. One of the reasons I am hopeful about all this is that a few decades ago when I went through university, uh, the place was entirely secular. This was an elite school in the Ivy League. And there were almost no religious believers to be found. Neither were there priests, to my understanding. Um, the place was barren. It really had been flattened. And this was true of the other schools I was in, in contact with. So what I'm trying to say is that the fact that you have Thomistic circles on campuses is an amazing reversal. The fact that Focus Fellowship of Catholic University students is now on over 100 campuses. That's also an amazing reversal. And these kinds of movements are paralleled within uh, the Protestant world and on many Protestant campuses as well. So I believe that the kind of flattening we saw in decades past has inspired movements that will bear fruit, you probably see that they already are bearing fruit, but the graduates who come out of Thomistic Circles and the Love and Fidelity Network and Focus and all of these places that never existed before are going to go on and shape the society of the next decade, the next three decades, the next four decades. And by the force of their example, they will have an effect on other people who will, again, if my bet is right, will already be forced to do some rethinking on their own because of the empirical evidence out there. So let me offer one analogy that's more down to earth. 50 years ago, smoking was everywhere. Tobacco smoking was ubiquitous. I remember when you could smoke in hospital rooms, in fact. Uh, <laughs> as long as there wasn't an oxygen tent present, um, it was unremarkable. All the adults did it. Um, growing up, I, I knew very few who didn't. And over the years, something pretty dramatic happened. There was a major transformation of the consensus surrounding tobacco. And why did that occur? It's because from 1964 onward, I think it was the Surgeon General's report, People kept insisting, scientists kept insisting, look, you have to read this new study. It shows that some people are injured by smoking. Um, not everybody, but some, enough that we have to take it seriously. And this went on and on and on. And it took decades to force a, a reconsideration. And I, I do not mention this to stigmatize smokers. I'm just trying to explore the analogy here because I think it's really interesting. Uh, the world we live in today is a very different place when it comes to that particular substance. It was successfully stigmatized, or its use was stigmatized in certain situations, like restaurants, for example, indoors, uh, hospitals, 
uh, schools, etc. Uh, little by little, this amounted to major rollback in the social consensus about cigarette smoking. And not only in the United States, again, across the Western world. So why should we feel hopeless when we think that the evidence is also accumulating that post-revolutionary sexual life is problematic? The evidence is accumulating that it is making people miserable too, uh, perhaps even shortening the lives of some because of loneliness and drug addiction. I think that's an analogy worth keeping in mind. And when people feel as if it's all lost um, and the losing side of history and all of that, remember that counterexample because it's potentially fruitful. Yeah. For whatever reason right now, I'm thinking of Walker Percy's Love in the Ruins. And uh, Dr. Thomas More has his lapsometer as a way by which to measure the degree of you know, cultural decay that has set in with his patients. Um, one of the things that's you know potent about the example of you know cigarette smoking is that we all have a, an image in our mind of these are your healthy lungs and these are your smoking lungs. I, I just wonder what those kind of images will be in ten years and twenty years, which will capture the cultural imagination of America and beyond. Um, because I think that um, we have difficulty assimilating the data and then furnishing our contemporaries with compelling like iconography or heraldry, I suppose, of that change. But we need to be able to point to like, these are your healthy lungs, these are your smoking lungs in a comparable way. I don't know, do you have thoughts as to, as to how we might do that? Well, I have a thought that I haven't seen expressed anywhere else, but there could be something in it. Uh, as of Dobbs, perhaps there will be fewer abortions in America, and if there are fewer abortions in America, that means more babies and children. And babies and children humanize adults and teach them compassion and self-sacrifice. And I believe that one of the problems uh, in society since the revolution is that many people don't have experience of babies and children anymore or they have very fleeting experiences. They're not put in charge of them. They don't have the opportunity to love them and to know what it's like to be loved back by them. And so what I'm saying is, without lifting a finger about social science, uh, without even uh, having a, a great awakening, just the reappearance, perhaps, of the young and vulnerable on a scale that we uh, haven't been accustomed to might have the effect of humanizing and teaching all on its own, just the way as the, the same way that the young have always had the effect of teaching compassion and humanity and self-sacrifice uh, on the part of those in charge of them. Great. Hey, that's that's compelling. I'm thinking of a um, a pregnancy center in Louisville, Kentucky, where I was assigned for one year, and they took a very whimsical or winsome kind of hipster approach. And they, rather than, you know, choosing to campaign against abortion in a particular way, they chose to campaign for life in a particular way. And so they had these, these, these billboards up throughout town with little things like, you've got it in you, um, which I found, yeah, just very, just very delightful to see. And it always kind of gave me hope when I saw it. So, all right, here's to a future like that. Um, with that, though, we've, we've come to the end of our time. So Thanks so much for having taken the time. Uh, for those who would like to follow up with you, who would like to purchase the book, where are ways in which they can be in touch, ways in which they can um, find your work? 
Thank you. The book was published by Ignatius Press. It is also available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc., as is the predecessor volume that I was talking about. Uh, I also have a website, maryeverstat.com, where people could find interviews, information about the other books, and essays, etc. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again. And then turning to you, the listener, thanks so much for having tuned into this episode of Off Campus Conversations. Uh, if you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the Thomistic Institute podcast, whether on YouTube or on your podcast app. Uh, and then we'll look forward to chatting with you at the next opportunity. So know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll talk to you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast.